Let's uh, open up our Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 26 for you. That's what we'll be. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman had said, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Verse 13, and Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, the place where is the place where the people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Verse 25, and the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the, tri- the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Lord, this is uh, an amazing encounter here, and there's so much so many things. I just ask that you would please uh, open our hearts, give us eyes to, to see, ears to hear, hearts to follow. There's so many circumstances within this room, Lord, and conditions of the heart, and we ask that you'd be merciful to us, Lord, and shine your glorious light. Thank you for your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. So, really quickly, if you remember last week at the end of John chapter 3, John the Baptist, upon hearing 
that more people were coming to Jesus, said in verse 30, he must increase, that is, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease, right? And in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4, we see that the Pharisees are now hearing that Jesus is gaining more attention than John. They're the political, religious faction. The the Pharisees are uh, one of two major parties within that political system, political, religious system. And basically, they're, they're concerned. They're concerned because there's some drawing of attention to these two other guys, and they like attention drawn to them, as we will see later in John. But... So Jesus, he leaves, he leaves the area and he goes to, uh, he goes to the area of Galilee. And as he goes to Galilee, it says that um, he had to go through Samaria in verse 4, right? And so it's really interesting that as he passes through Samaria, uh, well, I mean, he, as a Jew, he had to pass through Samaria, and Samaria is that area between, um, between Judea in the south and Israel in the north. And, uh, Judea in the south and Galilee in the north, excuse me, my, my iPad went crazy and I can't do th- two things at once. I know this stuff in my head, so I'll just do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So basically, what happened back in like 931... BC, so long time before, uh, King David had a son named Solomon. Solomon died. The, the kingdom was one. Israel was one at that point until basically Solomon died. Then uh, Jeroboam took over, and then the nation was divided into the north and the south. The southern part of Israel had a cap, has the capital of Jerusalem. That, that southern part is called Judea was called Judea, and it had a capital of Jerusalem. Well, the northern part was just called Israel, and its capital was Samaria. Well, what happened in 722 is basically uh, the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians. The northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians, and what happened is there was a remnant of people there kind of who were left behind, and what they did is they intermarried with the Assyrians. They intermarried with the Syrians. They took over their kind of religious aspects of things. There was just an intermarrying of Gentile and Jew. And so what that happened is they created this hybrid culture, this hybrid religion, half Jewish, half uh, Assyrian. So uh, that basically became the Samaritan people. And what would happen later is that whole section, instead of the capital being Samaria, they would just call that whole area Samaria. And that's, that's basically the history there. But the reason the, the Jews despised these half Assyrian, half Jews called Samaritans was because they had developed a pagan, hybrid Jewish religion. They just despised them. And it was back and forth. But they believed that the, the, the Samaritans believed that the true place of worship was in the north on Mount uh, Gerizim which was in Samaria. And so they set up their own temple. They set up their own priesthood. They set up their own, they had their own modified version of the Torah, the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, right? They had their, their Ten Commandments were the similar, except for the Tenth Commandment. It was an emphasis, emphasis on uh, Mount Gerizim being the place. And so they just had this different, a totally different system. And they were just you know, you had Jerusalem right there, you know, several miles apart from Samaria, and that's, those are these two cultural polar opposites. You've got the Jews who say, no, we're right, and then you've got the Samaritans who say, no, we're right. 
And, uh, and so the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along whatsoever. The Samaritans had a lot of trappings of Judaism, but it, it was perverted. And so as the Jews would travel back and forth, they would totally avoid Samaria, like the, the true Jews, right? Not, not the ones who go, ah, we'll just, you know, we'll just cut through. So what they would do is like if they were going from Jerusalem to the north, they would go up to where they had hit Samaria, and they would go all the way over to the Jordan River. They'd get on the other side of the Jordan where Gentiles lived. They'd go through the Gentile territory. They'd cut back over after they got over to Samaria and to Galilee, and they'd go wherever they wanted. Or they'd go along the coast. They'd do that as well. Instead of just the straight shot, they weren't going to drive through downtown. <laughs> right? And so... This is why when Jesus speaks about the Good Samaritan, it's really shocking to his listeners. I mean, Jesus was telling them to love one another. He's speaking to a bunch of Jews, and he's telling them, you love one another, you love your neighbor as yourself, and they're like, well, who is my neighbor? And then he tells a story about a bunch of Jews that were, you know, there were priests, and there were Levites, and there were all these, you know, really religious, great people, and they all stayed away from this guy who was hurt on the side of the road because they didn't want to be defiled because he had to be ceremonially unclean. But who's the one who stops and goes in? Who's the hero of the story? Who's the one who takes care of this person? The Samaritan. So Jesus makes that Samaritan the, you know, the, the, the right guy in, in the story, and they're just like, Rrr. I can't get over you. You're taking one of those guys and you're making them the hero of the story. No, it should be one of us Jews who's doing that. And Jesus would do that all the time. And it would drive them nuts. And they'd hate him. And so back in verse 4, it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. We're going to see why Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Jews just don't pass through Samaria, but Jesus passes through Samaria. Praise God. And so verse 5 says, So he came down to a town... Uh, of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, about 12 noon. You can read about, uh, you can read about Jacob in Genesis uh, 33, how he spent like 20 years with Laban and going back and forth with him, and he came away with problems. Um, Sorry, uh, two wives uh, who didn't like each other, and that got multiplied. And so it's about noon, and they're sitting, in, sitting there at that, at that well that Jacob eventually gave to Joseph in that region. And it says that Jesus was wearied from his journey. Isn't that interesting? <coughs> it's interesting to think of Jesus of being physically exhausted. Jesus was wearied, and he had to sit down. By a well, to get a drink of water, he was winded, he was tired. And that, that's interesting because the, the, the Gospels, they describe him in these terms. They describe him in those ways as being exhausted, of, of being hungry, tired, asleep on a boat, right? At his temptation, he was hungry and thirsty, and, and then we find him asleep on the boat, and here he's resting by the well, John is writing, of course, that we would believe that Jesus is Son of God, but he also did leave out his eyewitness accounts of the humanity of Jesus. I think that's important to remember. Jesus is the Son of God without a doubt. In, in John's 
exemplifying and showing those miracles, but without a doubt, he is also the Son of Man. He is the Son of Man. He's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, yet without sin. What kind of weaknesses do we have? Many, vast. The God-man Jesus Christ can relate. And so in the heat of the day, right about noon, he sat beside Jacob's well, verse 7, and a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Right? And so here's Jesus. He's weary. He's thirsty. And he meets a Samaritan woman coming to draw water in the middle of the day. And that's an important cultural clue. That's an important cultural clue that we'll get to as soon as my iPad stops going crazy here. It's interesting because drawing water in those days was not done in the middle of the day. How many like to get out there right about now and mow your lawn? You know, go do hard yard work. You get up real early or you do it when the sun starts to set, right? If you remember back in the, uh, the story of Rebecca and the servant of Abraham back in Genesis 24, it says in verse 11, uh, if you remember uh, when Eleazar or, or the servant of Abraham comes, he takes his camels, he comes to the well outside the city, and he, he, he sees all the women, they're all gathered together there. Well, it says in verse 11 uh, that it was towards the evening time when the women go to draw water. That's when he came. So there was a cultural setting in which the women took care of this chore, and they would all do that at the time of the sun going down when it's cooler. And so it seems that the Samaritan woman, is, she's drawing water. When is she doing it? In the middle of the day. She's doing it alone in the heat of the day. And Jesus, meeting her, asks her for a drink of water. She was taken back at Jesus, a Jew, who would be talking with her, a Samaritan. It wasn't the cultural norm, right? As we discussed, that didn't happen. Let alone men speaking to women in public, let alone their wives. It didn't happen. It was a reserved culture. So she understood these things. She understood the cultural implications of what was going on that Jews didn't get along with Samaritans. Samaritans didn't interact with Jews. John's most likely writing this from Ephesus. And Ephesus isn't, isn't in Israel. It's in Turkey. Just like we're not in Israel. We don't understand these cultural things. And so we see these brackets where John is trying to explain some context. He's letting us know what's going on. What are the cultural dealings? And this Samaritan woman knew the deep tension there was between the Samaritans and the Jews. But on top of that, rabbis don't touch unclean things. Gentiles, unclean. Drinking out of their water pot, unclean. They'd be ceremonially defiled. These things do not happen. There are so many wrongs. Um, You know, it's like people taking their 
shoes off on an airplane. What are you doing? There's just like, don't do that, you know? <laughs> it's just wrong. But Jesus ignores all of these cultural biases. He, he asks her for a drink, and she says, why are you talking to me? And here's Jesus' response, verse 10. Check it out. And Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Wow. When the conversation began, Jesus was weary and thirsty, right? And the woman was the one who had the water, correct? Isn't that interesting? But what did Jesus say to the woman? If you knew the gift of God, if you knew who I was, if you knew what I offered, you'd be asking me for a drink and I would give you living water. I would give you living water. Jesus says to the woman, you're the one who needs a drink. You're the one who needs water. You are a spiritual desert, and I am the source of spiritual water. If you knew who I was, you would ask me. What's the problem? What's her problem? She doesn't know. She doesn't know what? She doesn't know she needs a drink. She doesn't know who he is. What is this? What's going on there? What, what does that describe? Someone who is spiritually what? Dead. Blind. She's a spiritual de- desert. And Jesus is speaking about heavenly, heavenly things with her using earthly symbols. Jesus is using the imagery of water, of how it quenches thirst, right? How it brings life to our bodies and plants and animals, and this planet is pretty blue. He's using that as a picture of how, of how water is essential to us, of how his spiritual life is to the spiritually dead person. And he is the possessor and giver of that life. In John 17, 3, Jesus is praying in the high priestly prayer. He's praying to his father. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you have granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal Life to all that those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, Jesus says, that they know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you knew me, you would have eternal life. If you knew who I was, I would give you my life. There's a problem. She doesn't know. She's unaware. She doesn't know she's thirsty. So Jesus uses water to start to help her to understand that she has a spiritual thirst. That she needs to be rejuvenated. That she needs to be regenerated by God. Jesus just finished with Nicodemus a short time ago. What's the imagery she used, he used with him? You must be what? Born again. And Nicodemus is going, how did he, how did he respond to that? He's like, I don't get this. What are you talking about? You gotta be born again. How can a man be born again when he's old? Same message, different picture. 
And John will use several of these images over and over and over and over and over to illustrate that Jesus is eternal life. I'm the bread of life. I'm you know, the manna that comes down from heaven. Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have, you're dead. Right? I'm the living water. I'm the gate. I'm the good shepherd. He just goes on over and over and over again of explaining from all these different angles, you need me. How did Nicodemus respond? How can these things be? How can a man be born when he's old? He couldn't understand quite beyond where he was in his own little selfish, fleshly universe. He couldn't get beyond physical birth. And now Jesus meets this woman at the well. If you, if you knew me, I would give it to you. What are you going to do? And, and how, does, how does she respond? She's, he's like, you need living water. I've got it. I can give it to you. What is her response? Verse 11, the woman says to her, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Just like Nicodemus, she is spiritually blind. She is spiritually dead. She does not know who it is that is before her. She is hopeless. She is lost. She doesn't get it. Just like Nicodemus. Just like every single human being born into this world. We are born into darkness by nature. We are children of wrath. We're part of the kingdom of darkness. And unless God in his grace breaks through into our darkness and wakes us up to the fact we will have no clue that we have spiritual thirst. We have no clue that we don't have life. God loves us. Not to keep us in darkness, but to give us his water, his life. And he breaks into our darkness and he starts speaking to our hearts. That's God intervening. Salvation comes from outside. It's not from within. She can't see. The Samaritan woman looks like she looks around and, and the only world she knows is in front of her and she looks at Jesus who she's blinded to and she looks at the well and thinks, how can you give me anything? How can you make these promises? You, you know, how can you give me anything? Jesus, Jesus, you don't even have a spoon. Like, where's your, where's your dipping ladle thing? You don't have a bucket? Like, what can you give me? Where are you going to get this living water? I'm curious. You see, when jo Jesus speaks into her darkness, when he speaks into her life, it's something starts to click. He starts to illuminate. He gets her to start thinking. And this is how it begins with us. The Lord comes into our life and he starts messing with our paradigm. He starts speaking truth into our darkness, doesn't he? And we start thinking of things that we had never thought of before. We start waking up. We start being stirred in our spirit. She's still thinking about regular water and not having to come back to this place anymore, right? But she's going, this guy might be able to give me water, but how is he going to do that? And so she says in verse 12, she says, Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. You know, she goes back to Jacob, man. This guy's great. He was awesome. Look at this well. Right here, he gave us this well. We're descendants. Well, the Samaritans, you know, they all kind of, she had her idea of what was going on there. But he gave us this water. We're drinking from this well. Like there's, there's real water right here. He gave it to us. Are you greater than him? How are you going to give me water? I love Jesus and how long-suffering he is with us. How many of you get to that place where Jesus says something and you just kind of start to fight back with him? You know, how are you going to do that? There's no way you can overcome this or this or that, blah, blah, blah. You know, and he's like, just sit. he just rolls with us and lets us do our thing. He's so long-suffering. He comes into our darkness. He starts to just give illumination by his Holy Spirit, by his word. And he shines his light. Verse 13, and Jesus said to her, everyone, he brings more clarity. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So what is Jesus clarifying here for her? He's trying to get her mind off of H2O and onto a different type of water. He takes an earthly analogy, he starts speaking with her where where she's at, and then what does he start to do? He starts to point her up. Shows her something deeper. He's saying, this water, you're going to thirst again. I'm not talking about H2O. I'm talking about a different water. I'm talking about eternal life. I am the source of eternal life. The water I give is eternal. It wells up. It overflows. It doesn't recede. You don't need to take another drink when I give you my life. And the woman still doesn't quite get it. She says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's finally asking, isn't she? She's finally asking for water. But does she even know what she's asking for? No, she doesn't. She still thinks Jesus is talking about some kind of magical magical water. That somehow if you put it through some kind of filter and add some flavors in it. You can sell for a lot more money than regular water. But she, she knows she has physical thirst, but she doesn't know she has spiritual thirst yet, right? Right? And so how is Jesus going to show her she's spiritually thirsty? How is he going to bridge the gap? What's he going to do? He's going to go for the jugular. Because that's what Jesus does. He loves us enough to show us how thirsty we truly are in our soul. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Great answer. But you're dealing with Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. You're shacking up. 
What's Jesus doing? Why is he getting into her personal life? Why doesn't he just give her the water even if she doesn't understand what's going on? Because that's a false water. It's not real life. She needs to know her spiritual thirst. She needs to know the depth of her need for new life. She needs conviction by God over her darkness, over her rebellion, over her sin, the very reason that she has no life. And so Jesus shows her her absolute drought within her. She keeps running to the wells of this world that never satisfy. It will never satisfy her. Five husbands, now with a man, and she's not married to him. Jesus is showing her need for repentance and salvation. To the, This well is, is killing you. Turn and come to real life. And this is what the Holy Spirit does when he draws us, when he awakens us from death. He convicts us of our sin. And this is where people don't like God because they want that gospel. They want the one where he's going to give you the drink of H2O. They want the one where they're going to tell you, you know, I'm going to give you a happy family. I'm going to give you a happy life. I'm going to ha- give, you know, you're going to be successful and you're going to be all these things. You're not going to suffer, right? That appeals to someone who's outcast and at, at the well at noon and all these types of things. When Jesus comes to her and he says, this is what's going on. This is what's truly going on. He confronts her over her sin. But as only he can, that's what the Holy Spirit does. Why would he do that? That's mean. Don't you just let people lie and all that type of stuff? No. Because he wants to quench that thirst. Truly quench it. Jesus said in Revelation 3.17 as he's calling the church to repent in Laodicea, he says in verse 17, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I have need of nothing not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. This is a church. These are believers. And they're saying, listen, we're good, Jesus. We're good. We have no need. And Jesus turns around to the church and says, you've forgotten. You've forgotten how absolutely destitute you were when I bought you. You've forgotten that you had nothing to offer. You have no good, you have no well within your side. You're just a desert of death. And I came into your life and I gave you my life. I filled you up. I regenerated you and somehow you've forgotten me. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. You have true wealth. 
and white garments so that you may be clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see, right? He's saying, come to me. You don't realize your own blindness. And we don't realize our own blindness, church. That's what, you get a group of sinners together, guess what they're not going to see? Well, they might pick out each other, but we're not going to all say, we're all blind. We're all sinners. They're not going to do that. They're going to point at everybody else's little thing, right? And Jesus shows us in his mercy and his grace how absolutely blind we are so that we would come to him, so that we would come to him and receive sight, another idiom for being born again. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Right? Pictures of what? Salvation. Jesus, even speaking to those who are apparently saved, reminds them of their total need for his provision for their sinfulness. Jesus knew this woman's spiritual state, right? When she didn't, Jesus knew her thirst. Jesus knew why she was alone at that well at 12 o'clock, avoiding the other women, most likely. Jesus was there to give her what she did not possess, what she could not get from her own her own world, life, eternal life from above, brought in by grace into this woman's life. And Jesus is slowly waking her up to the reality of her need. This is what the Lord does in our lives to bring us to salvation. As she realizes her sin and she realizes her spiritual desert, that she's poor in spirit, and that she mourns over the sin in her life. And as repentance happens, as the Spirit convicts her, she turns towards Christ. That's what he's desiring. And Jesus gives her the living water as Savior. And that is where Jesus is leading her. And that is often a process. And it takes some time. (laughs) Sometimes. Sometimes it's momentary, but I'll tell you what. Sometimes it takes a while for the Lord to wake us up. And so she says to Jesus in verse 18, what you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place you ought to worship. She says to Jesus about all that she had done, what you said is true. You're right, I am that woman. She's just confessing. But she's all, now I've got a problem. I'm guilty. What do we do? You're a prophet. Obviously, I've got a problem. Where do I go to get this fixed? My ancestors say, on this hill over here, that's where we take care of business. Your people say, on that hill over there, that's where you, or on Jerusalem, that's where you take care of business. Where, where do we, what physical location do I go to to get this taken care of. I believe that's what's happening here. I know there's other slants on this, but it seems to be more in keeping with what's going on. Which one's right? Where do I go? She's wondering about the location. What is Jesus speaking about? Is he speaking about physical or is he speaking about spiritual? 
And Jesus says to her, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. I love how Jesus speaks truth in love, even in difficult circumstances. He says to her, the location is not going to be important soon, and it wouldn't be the new covenant changes things. But just to be clear, you Samaritans are wrong. You're wrong. That's hardcore, huh? He's trying to bring... How can you do that? You're trying to bring someone to Jesus. Aren't you supposed to be super, like, PC? I don't know. I think that means we have small faith. I think we could be gentle and respectful and truthful, right? We don't need to be mean. We could say, no, that, that's wrong. <laughs> that's not true. What does Jesus say? It's not from Samaria. The Jews have it right because salvation is of the Jews. What does that mean? Jesus came from whom? The Jews. God chose the city to where the temple was to be installed, and it's in Jerusalem. You guys have it wrong. You've got a false worship system. But Jesus says he doesn't get into the details so much. He's saying it's going to be irrelevant, and Jesus gives the heart of it. The location isn't the issue, but true worship is. True worship. Salvation is of the Jews. Jesus says to her, verse 23, the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father at Christ Community Fellowship. Did you like that translation? But the hour is coming and is now here when true, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Those are the true worshipers. God is seeking the spirit, not the flesh, not the location. What does that mean? Verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit. In truth, must worship in spirit, in truth. God, the Father, is spirit. He isn't physical, right? Spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. It's invisible. True and proper worship is in spirit. It isn't the external location, right? I worship God in, you know, in the spirit is what it's supposed to be. True worship doesn't come from the external. It comes from the inner spirit of a person who's been born again. When you're born again, God gives you his spirit. And out of that new life, that new birth, wells up eternal life. And that is why we worship. It is an all-day, all-time, all-location thing. It's not kept in a building. I am now going to worship and then therefore now worship happens and then now I go live my life. That's what they were doing. Jesus says, no, true worshipers, you're worshiping in the car, 
You're worshiping Him with your family. You're worshiping Him at Walmart. You're worshiping Him at work. In spirit and in truth. Now, it's important. It isn't the location and adherence to ordinances and customs and rituals that constitutes true worship, right? We know that. True worship doesn't come from the eternal. It comes from the internal. When God has made us born again, and that worship is an alliance, it's in, it's in order, it's in arrangement with what God says. This is really important because me coming from more of a charismatic background or those I've run into, they go, oh, man, or, or just people who like to, you know, I've heard it, you know, hey, man, I worship God, I worship God in nature. I do too. You can worship God when you're surfing. You can worship God when you're up in the hills. You know, nature is my church. No, it's not. No, it's not, because God tells you how he wants to be worshipped, correct? And part of what he says is, if you love me, you're going to go love my people. Well, my people meet on Sunday morning. Go be with them and go love them. My people meet on Wednesdays or at a home group or wherever it is. Be where they are. So don't, th- don't try to get out of, God says, you got to worship me. This isn't me trying to get you to go to church, you know. You're at church. Great job. <laughs> but we can, we can work these things. But it, it's spirit in truth. Truth, true worship, again, doesn't come from the external, but it's in alignment with what God says. You show me you love me by how you love them. That's worship. What you do with your time reveals your heart. What you do with your talent reveals your heart. What you do with your treasure reveals your heart. That's what you do is an expression of who you are. That's worship. And so if your life is centered on God and and it's it's worship, guess what? Your life is going to be centered around the things of God in all the circumstances he places you in, wherever that is, being a mom, being at work, out in the harvest, all throughout the week. Worship isn't a spirit hippie type of, you know, free spirit hippie thing, you know? Jesus is saying worship doesn't originate from a place or by going to do a bunch of rituals. It comes from the spirit of a person who's been born again by the spirit of God who then lives their life according to the truth. They're in obedience to Jesus Christ. Our, our church's motto is really simple. We glorify God by loving and obeying Jesus Christ. That's true worship. You want to have true worship? Love and obey Jesus. You can't have one without the other. To obey Jesus is to love him. To love him is to obey him. And then what does he say? Go love one another. Right? He talks about all these manners of, of ways in which we worship God in spirit and in truth. A life submitted to God. As we're closing here, Jesus is saying that worship doesn't originate from a place or by doing by a bunch of rituals. I, I think T- King David, when he sinned grievously against God, he understood this. In Psalm 51, 14 through 17, David cried out, Deliver me from blood guiltlessness, O God. 
O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Verse 16, for you delight in what? If you do, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it to you. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise these. David knew where true worship came from, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, a bruised heart towards God. That's where worship came from. This woman wanted water without repentance. It doesn't happen. And that's a work of God in the heart of a believer. True worship is a response to the mercy and grace of God upon a person. Do you know this morning, have you ever known the depths of the desert that God has saved you from? When you know the depths of the desert, when God shows you these things, as you're reading his word and you see who he is and who you are and how you stack up and all these things, and you just read them for what he is, you start to see who you truly are. And the Holy Spirit is calling you then to fall on your face before God and say, what you say about me is true. And then God does an amazing work. As we mourn over our sins, and you just cry out to him, Lord, convict me, cleanse me of this stuff, open up my eyes. I know I'm totally blind. I'm among blind people. I have no idea. Show me. And his word starts to illuminate the inner workings of your heart, starts to show you who you really are. And then... As he, conf- as he shows you your sinfulness, you confess it to him and he cleanses you from all unrighteousness to the blood of Jesus Christ. He gives you his, his life. And let me tell you, there's nothing like it. And it wells up and you're changed and you're never the same. And those wells stink. The old wells you went to stink. You go back to them and you go, this water is yucky. There's nothing like the water that Jesus gives. There's nothing like it. This water does not satisfy his water. Man. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, God is spirit. You've got to worship in spirit and truth. You must be born again, right? Verse 25, quickly to the end, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. She's getting pushed into a corner here a little bit. Okay, maybe you're greater than Jacob, but, uh, you know, we're going to do the trump card here. Messiah, he's like the biggest. When he comes, he'll figure this whole thing out. And then the most astonishing verse here, verse 26, and Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What gracious, gracious words that the God from all eternity would walk into this woman's life who was totally riddled with sin and say, let me give you my water. If you knew who I was, and then he walks into the place and shows her who he is. That's what God does to us. How merciful. If you knew the gift of God, and if you knew the one who was speaking to you, you would ask, and he would give you living water. Jesus chose to reveal himself to a Samaritan woman who had five husbands and was an adulterous, in adulterous relationship. That's who Jesus decides to give his life to. 
Thank you, Lord, that you are merciful to Gentiles like me, like us. Amen. He takes a Paul who murdered Christians and has him write most of the New Testament, not glorifying the murder, but glorifying his mercy and grace. Moses, what desert are you in? Jesus is a tsunami waiting to happen in your life. It's like you're at the bottom of the Marianas Trench looking up at the living water that he has flooded over in you. Jesus chose to reveal himself to this woman. This woman had no clue about her condition until Jesus came into her life. Jesus showed her her spiritual thirst. Jesus revealed her sin. Jesus showed her what true worship was. And then Jesus revealed himself as the one who could give her that true life, his life, eternal life, the living water. Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, the Messiah, amen? Let's pray. Blessed are the poor in spirit, you said, Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Do that work in your church, Lord, and in the lost in this room. May we have your eternal life, believing that you died in our place to satisfy the wrath of God. Lord, may we now follow you out of true worship. Wherever you send us, wherever you call us, whatever you say, Lord, we're your servants and we love you. Be honored today. Be honored today in the baptism as our brothers and sisters identify with this, that you have given them, you've submersed them in your living water and now they're declaring it, that you are it. Bless us, Lord. We need you so much. Reveal the depths of our thirst, Lord. Forgive us for being those who would say that we have everything together. We don't. Create a hunger and a thirst in this fellowship, Lord, for you and for your word, Lord, for your, your heart. And let it spread everywhere. By your grace, in the name of Jesus, amen. <laughs>